Hello, welcome to the Courtney Turner Podcast. We are live here with Dr. Ely, who I think a lot of my audience will remember from the Healing for the Ages. Um, I actually think I have a link there uh, for those who want to watch the replay of that conference. It was incredible. I was there. So much incredible, valuable information. So I highly recommend you check that out. And we are going to talk with Dr. Ely and this team about the grand jury petition update. Um, which I'm so grateful that they're doing this because there needs to be accountability. And that just doesn't seem to be something that it, we ever see. So at least we have them, which I'm really grateful for, to at least try and get some accountability for uh, these incredible uh, crimes in, against humanity. So, uh, yeah, so we'll bring them all back in. And, uh, yeah, I'll let Dr. Yuli, I'll let you start off and give just a little overview of what is going on here, what you are doing, where you're at in this process, and uh, introduce all of you. You're muted, Dr. Ely. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, I, had a, I had a little technical malfunction right there. Thank you so much for having us, Courtney. We are really grateful for this opportunity to be able to share with your audience. Uh, really, I think what is something that every American should be aware of and every American hopefully would be supportive of. Uh, and that is our grand jury petition in the Ninth Circuit Court in Oregon. Uh, and what we are doing is we are attempting um, with great, great effort to get every bit of information we can exposing the criminal data fraud and willful misconduct that led to the construct of COVID. Uh, especially in the early months. Now, what a lot of people remember is that um, there were heavy incentives paid to hospitals and to doctors who diagnosed COVID. Mm -hmm. What a lot of people don't uh, understand is how that was constructed and the illegal nature that it was constructed in. You see, the CDC actually violated three very important laws, the Administrative Procedures Act, the Paperwork Reduction Act, and the Information Quality Act, mm -hmm. in putting forth really some very questionable, at best, guidelines regarding COVID. On March 24th, the CDC changed how death certificates were reported, and they changed it only for COVID. Now, this is a very minor thing apparently to a lot of people, but a very major thing in reality. Because what the CDC did was they said, historically, we've always counted the oldest known pathology, the oldest known com comorbidity as the cause of death. If you had hypertension for 10 years and then you caught the flu and then you died, they wouldn't say that you died because of the flu. They'd say you died because of hypertension. Does that make sense so far? Sure. Yeah. Well, what the CDC did on March 24th, 2020, with no approval, with no oversight, and with no public comment, which is all against the law, is they changed how death certificates are recorded, but only for COVID. Now, if you were 65 and you had multiple comorbidities, those got moved to a different part of the death certificate so that COVID could be listed as the cause of death. And when you do something like that, you now fraudulently inflate the number of COVID deaths. Now, does that make sense right there too so far? Yeah, they're, they're big on changing definitions. They were changing the definition of pandemic and vaccine uh, around that time as well. You, so. you know it, and all without oversight and all without public comment, which are essential right 
to our our free process. Now, yeah. there's a whole nother thing that's going on in here where a few weeks later, the CDC elected to change how COVID would be diagnosed. And when they changed how COVID would be diagnosed, they did something very, very interesting. They said that you could cough once and it could be counted as COVID. Most Americans don't know that. But what also most Americans don't know is that- When I have something stuck in my throat and I cough, I I now have COVID. You have COVID. If you you have a little tickle in your throat, that's COVID. And now we can bill the Medicare and Medicaid for that, okay? Now, what gets a little crazier is this. The CDC outsourced the development of that document to a little-known nonprofit organization called the Council of State and Territorial Epidemiologists. What a lot of people don't know is that that organization has zero governmental authority, especially during a time of crisis, and that they are heavily funded by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation and Gavi and all the vaccine interest groups. So what happened was clear collusion and clear dereliction of duty to ensure that they got the numbers that they needed because you can't have a pandemic without those type of numbers. Does that make sense? Of course. Okay, now, they've set up inflation of case counts. You can't have emergency acts and powers if you don't declare there's some sort of emergency. Emergency, you got it, right? It's pretty simple. So they inflated fraudulently the death count, and then they inflated fraudulently the case count, but then it gets even a little bit worse. Courtney, do you remember when everybody was getting those positive COVID tests and you couldn't go back to work until you got at least one negative COVID test? Oh, I remember. And they were sticking swabs up your nose and yeah. And do you remember when people were going from test center to test center to test center just to try and get a negative test? Yes. Yes. I recall. So there there were a lot of people who were just trying to get back to work because they were technically asymptomatic, which means they were healthy (laughs) and they should have been able to go back to work. But do you know that every single time they tested positive for COVID and it was a false positive, you know that every single time that was counted as a new COVID case? Yeah, no, I I actually did know that. Yeah, it's criminal, especially when they're manipulating the cycles to get false positives. You nailed it, right? Especially (laughs) when it's above 40, you can find whatever you want. Remember, they tested with a pow-pow fruit and I think a pineapple and those tested positive for COVID and all that stuff, right? So what you have here, though, clearly is fraud. And when you have fraud on that magnitude. Yeah, mass scale fraud. And when it's connected to incentivization for hospitals and doctors to put COVID down as the cause of death. And not only incentivization, but there's also the threat of uh, harm, right? You know, people were concerned that if they didn't go along, they might not only not only were they incentivized by the fiscal rewards, but they were also uh, concerned that they may lose their job. They may lose licensure, uh, reputation or you know, so the, it was on both sides, not just incentivized to go along, but also, mm-hmm. uh, you know, penalized for standing up against it. 100%. So if you if you do what we tell you to do, we'll reward you. 
And if you don't, we will punish you mercilessly. Right. right? So it's like you're, you're, you have people who are stuck between a rock and a hard place, really, if yeah. you have any ethics. But what happens after that is the effective theft of at least $4.5 trillion of U.S. taxpayer money. Sure. And so what I want to do is introduce you to the team of people who said, no, not on our watch. <laughs> and what we have with us, who we have with us tonight are experts in their respective fields that have come together. We've been meeting every single week for over three years wow. to make sure that we are fighting on behalf of the American people. And on December 5th, we finally get our first day in court, oral arguments to express to the judges listening, why we have a right and a duty as citizens to get this information to a grand jury and that the courts do not possess the right to prevent us from doing so. And that's where our attorney, Stephen Jonkis, is going to be arguing on our behalf. He's going to be arguing on the behalf of myself, Senator Kim Thatcher, who's with us, Senator Dennis Linthicum, who isn't uh, with us tonight, and the incredible work of Keith Wilkins, who is our RICO expert, uh, Albert Benavides, who is our Veras expert, and Judge Paul Nally, who is our grand jury expert, all on with us tonight. So who would you like to hear from first? Um, I, I don't know. I mean, we could go around. We could start from top right down and go that way. Paul, start with you. How was that? got it. <laughs> Judge, Judge Nally, can you tell Courtney and her audience why the grand jury system is really the key vehicle for we, the people, to correct this great injustice that's been thrust upon us. Thank you, doctor, and I'll do my best. First thing folks need to understand is that the inclusion of the grand jury into the constitutions, federal and state, is the method by which the people retain the full power to manage their government. And I mean full power. You and I can sit here and claim this or claim that. And that's just so much utterances in the wilderness of society. Mm-hmm. But when a grand jury gets together, they come out with a presentment or indictments. And immediately, anybody and everybody is paying attention. What they say? The reason for that is because the grand jury is clothed and is acknowledged in our founding charters as being possessed with awesome power. First off, no one in this nation, and I mean nobody, no, no president of the United States, no dog catcher, and no private citizen has any immunity from a grand jury inquiry. That's the first thing you've got to know. The the next thing that you need to know is all of, of all of the public officials, every one of them, not one has an oath of office that requires them to tell you the truth, except a grand jury. That is, wow. part of, that is part of their oath. There's two things they will do. Diligently inquire and true resentment make. Here again, 
if you and I sit here and make statements, those are just bald allegations. When a grand jury speaks, you have at least a reasonable presumption that a group of your neighbors have discovered the truth and they are telling you what that truth is. So that's the reason getting to a grand jury is critically important is so that we, the people can continue to manage our government in a reasonable manner. Now, the problem is the access to the grand jury, even though you have a right to petition, a right to peaceably assemble, a right to speak, and a right to be heard. You are being obstructed. Oh, and you have a right to the courts. And by the way, a grand jury, people need to understand, a grand jury is a court of inquiry. There's case law on that. So you are being deprived of your First Amendment rights, your fundamental rights. I might add, anytime you are obstructed in your access. And today, the United States Department of Justice and virtually all district attorneys throughout this country, not to mention a vast number of judges, are obstructing you in the exercise of your property interest. And yes, it is your property. It is called a property interest. It is an intangible. Under Georgia law, property is defined as anything of value, tangible or intangible. And I think um, the Ninth Circuit, of course, uh, Mr. Jonkus will speak further on this, but the Ninth Circuit is sitting on the edge of a cliff, so to speak. Because if they come back and say, yeah, judge, you should have opened up that grand jury door. Or you should have at least did what the uh, Congress told you to do and ask the one question you had jurisdiction to ask. And by the way, the judge didn't have jurisdiction to do what he did. But that one duty is to ask the question, is this in the public interest? And if it is, open that grand jury door. Bring those grand jurors into the court. Charge them as to this situation. Send them back to their courtroom and have the uh, plaintiffs all line up and get ready to give their testimony. So anyway, this it's going to be, a, depending on what the Ninth Circuit does, I, I don't, I'm hopeful but I don't have an awful lot of hope that they're going to open the grand jury door, and without all of you. Well, yeah, it's a little somber, isn't it? Yeah, there, right Courtney, right? <laughs> Definitely. Definitely. Yeah, this, is, this is what we, this is the process, and I think the thing we want to get across to everybody listening in is this: this is a war of attrition. Mm-hmm. You have to be willing to have some swings and misses you have to be willing to keep fighting on and that's what's so special about this team right here senator linthicum senator 
uh, Thatcher, myself, and everybody on this team is committed to getting this all the way to the Supreme Court, which ultimately that's where it's going to find itself. We're all pretty confident about that. But it comes down to a fundamental question of if an American is aware of crimes that have been committed, who is going to hold an investigation to corroborate those crimes? And I think what we are saying here is the system is already in place. It's the grand jury system. The battle right now is to get the information in front of a grand jury so that they can do the investigation as they are supposed to do, as that court of inquiry that uh, Judge uh, that Judge Nally is talking about. Can I jump around a little bit here? Because I think I want to yep. follow up with uh, with Steve Jonkis on here and let him really talk about what's coming up on, yeah. on the 5th. So let's bring on um, uh, our attorney, Steve Jonkis, who's been doing He-Man level work in the courts on so many cases. He's one of the few attorneys that stepped up to the plate from the first day and said, no, this is not right. This is they're clearly breaking the law and we have to do whatever we can to fight through and get there. So, Steve, what what can you share with the audience about where we are right now in this process and what we can achieve if we get a favorable ruling? Okay. yes. Um, So uh, we started out uh, with a petition to the district court, which is the trial court in the federal system. And we asked the judge to refer us to a grand jury. And uh, there were a thousand pages of evidence attached to that petition. Um, And then we we named as uh, respondents um, a number of individuals in the NIH and the CDC, uh, including Rochelle Walensky. Um, the court, after um, considering the motion or the, the complaint and the motion to dismiss, elected to dismiss the case. And so we appealed to the Ninth Circuit, Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals. Um, on December 5th, we've already, we've already briefed um, all the arguments and um, we have an opportunity to give oral argument on December 5th. Uh, after that, the court will, will issue a ruling, agreeing or disagreeing with us, um, and uh, probably whichever, whichever happens, win or lose, they'll, the party that lost will appeal to the U.S. Supreme Court. Um, the, the basic obstacle we're facing here is is when the government has committed great crimes against the people and then the government, the Department of Justice, refuses to prosecute itself, what are our free people to do? How do we we get justice when the government refuses, when the government is created the, the, the largest crime in humanity against humans in the history of humanity and refuses to prosecute itself. Um, now, grand juries are an ancient mechanism. They predate the Constitution, the United States Constitution. They're an ancient mechanism to combat government corruption and protect the people from tyranny. And the government has gotten used to the idea that only a prosecutor has access to the grand jury, which is the typical case. Um, a typical case in the purpose of the grand jury is there to protect an individual from tyranny of the government 
through prosecution. So you, the prosecutor has to get over the hurdle of presenting his evidence to a grand jury who then can say yes or no to whether the prosecution will go forward. Uh, we're trying to employ the grand jury in a different way to fight tyranny of the government, which is the sword function. We're trying to use the grand jury to investigate the government's behavior. Um, there's a lot of um, law that, that demonstrates that, that we have the right to do this. Um, it's, this law says that the, the grand juries are not appointed for the prosecutor or the court. The law says that grand juries may investigate crimes identified by any source, no matter who suggests the crime. Um, the grand juries are a constitutional fixture in their own right. They're independent from the judiciary. They're independent from any other branch of government. They're not under the control of any branch of government. They're designed to preserve individual liberties and they may investigate without external supervision. So, uh, but, so prosecutors don't own the grand jury. Uh, based on based on historical precedent. But they've gotten used to doing that, and so has the court. Uh, and that was the reason why we were dismissed, because we're not prosecutors. And we don't, we're not seeking prosecution. We're seeking investigation, which is very important. We, we recognize that uh, we, as, as the public, cannot prosecute. That has to be the government. Um, so there's a statute, USC... 18 U.S.C. 3332, which says that alleged criminal offenses may be brought to the attention of the grand jury by a court. So we, that's what we did. We petitioned the court to bring, the, to, to refer our evidence to a grand jury. And then there's a, a rule of, a federal rule of criminal procedure, 6, which says when the public interest so requires, the court must, the court must order that one or more grand juries be summoned. So that's our case in a nutshell. The court uh, had to refer us to a grand jury. The only uh, screen on whether we have access to the grand jury is whether it's in the public interest. And a crime as large as this. Uh, a crime against humanity as large as this yeah. uh, definitely is in the public interest. Sure. One would think. Um, I, I just have a question, I guess, for, for anyone who wants to answer this, but it, it's this is being done in Oregon, correct? And is there a yeah, reason? Well, it's in federal court. It's in federal court, um, District of Oregon, federal court. Yeah. So each state, uh, there are 92 districts around the country. Some right. states have four districts like California. Oregon has one district. Mm -hmm. um, we filed it in the District of Oregon, and it's appealed to the Ninth Circuit, which is the circuit that covers the Western states, mm -hmm. including California, Oregon, Washington, Alaska, Hawaii, et cetera. Sure. And so, but I'm just curious the reason for appealing to that particular court. Well, well we're in Oregon. Me, yeah, yeah, yeah. See, yeah. So, uh, one of the things that we felt was very important, Courtney, was that we didn't give the appearance of going um, judge hunting, mm. you know, looking for a favorable court, because this is a matter of integrity. 
And this mm-hmm. is a matter of what is supposed to happen. We have Senator Dennis Linthicum, Senator, State Senator in Oregon, Senator Kim Thatcher, State Senator in Oregon, and mm-hmm. myself at the time, I was living in Oregon as well. Steve uh, at the time, uh, it, it still is in Oregon as well. And if we start going, let's say, to Texas or to Florida, we immediately give the appearance of that we're, we're hunting for a favorable court instead of standing on the law as it's supposed to be able to be stood on. Right. I, I see. Yeah, that makes sense. So um, can, and I wanted to ask Steve one follow-up question on this yeah. for the audience, and it ties in with what Judge Nally said earlier as well. In our initial petition, we did get an unfavorable ruling from Marco Hernandez. That was the judge that issued um, the dismissal in which we have since appealed. In our original document, our original court filing, we were very clear that we are not attempting prosecution, that we we are seeking investigation, and it's a very important point. Steve, can you correct me if I'm wrong on this? When we were reading through Marco Hernandez's uh, dismissal, he accused us of attempting prosecution and didn't receive our petition on the merits of investigation. Can you can you clarify that or clean that up for me a little bit? I, I believe that's that's what he concluded. I uh, I haven't read it in a little while, but I'm pretty sure that's what he's concluded. That's what the the uh, government argued was we're not entitled to prosecute and we agree we're not entitled to prosecute um but this is what we seek as an investigation so there isn't much there's lots of law on uh the public is not entitled to prosecute so they gravitated to this that law and they they created the straw man that what we really wanted to do was prosecute uh well we can't do that and we acknowledge we can't do that but uh there isn't a lot of law on on what we are asking to do, which is mm-hmm. um, investigate. Right. And so they, they they went to what they are familiar with <laughs> and what there's a lot of law on rather than addressing our question. Right. Exactly. I, I'm just curious. Uh, so when the investigation, is that through the process of discovery or is it a specific appeal for investigation? So the, the grand jury can investigate um, on its own. It may, okay. may investigate without external supervision. So uh, it can subpoena um, uh, documents and testimony mm-hmm. from whoever it wants to. Mm-hmm. And and on top of that, Courtney, the grand mm-hmm. jury has a as a court of inquiry has the ability to get mm-hmm. testimony from people that we didn't even name in the petition. So they could expand the scope of it to, if, if it's so is justified in their, in their opinion, it, they can expand it to people like Fauci and Bill Gates if they so chose. It, it's wow. unprecedented power that the grand jury has with the specific intent to hold corrupt governments in mm-hmm. check. And, right. that's what we, and that's why they don't want us to access it because the first people that are able to break through to the grand jury are going to tear this whole thing down. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So can I can I bring on Senator Kim Thatcher, one of our brave senators? Yeah, and I want to always I, I, I want to always just couch this because we have so many people and I've heard this over the years over the last three years so much that everybody in government is corrupt. 
<laughs> and for a while, I believed that too. I was like, it doesn't matter. They're all in on it. Republican, Democrat, doesn't matter. They're all in on it. I could not have been more wrong about that. And I could not have been more happy to be more wrong about that. Senator Thatcher, uh, do you mind telling everybody listening in what got you involved in this grand jury petition effort? Sure. Um, yeah, happy to. Actually, earlier today, I was going through some of my 2020 March and April, May um, 2020 emails at the time and all the information and all the changing circumstances and rules and, you know, no gatherings over 250 people. And then, you know, that quickly went down to like just a handful over time. And it just became so obvious early on that all these inequities, inconsistencies, and things that were just absurd during the lockdowns um, just, just didn't make sense. And after trying to break through to the Oregon Health Authority and ask the questions on as to how they're basing these policies, what are they based upon? It was usually pointing back to the CDC or back to the federal government. And so, you know, when you have a mom pop businesses that ha has to, a mom pop business has to remain closed while the large, you know, Costco's and Walmart's are can be open, but they're selling the exact same things. This doesn't make sense. Why, if, if that can be safe over there, why couldn't it be safe for a small business? And it just became clear that the policies are being rubber stamped at every level of government and indeed all over the world. And it, it, became obvious that there was no independent thinking within our state government. And it was painfully obvious that they things were not going to change at the state level. In fact, we have the state executive branch in charge of the Oregon Health Authority. It was rubber stamping all the things coming from the CDC and the government. And um, and then we had the, uh, the state legislative branch where the majority was in complete lockstep with the executive branch. And we had the state judicial branch where the majority of justices for the Supreme Court in Oregon had been appointed by the, by the executive branch, by the governor at that time. So it was, and it was also clear that if you went after the Oregon Health Authority or individuals as to why they were behaving, the way they were behaving, they're just going to point, you know, this, you know, those guys, they're telling us to do it. So when the opportunity arose to, I think, make a real difference and go right to the source, and that is the federal government, where all these policies were rooted, uh, when that opportunity to sign on to this legal request for a federal grand jury investigation came, I was absolutely, what I was praying for, actually, truth be known. So I was um, pleased that Dr. Ely and, um, you know, and that it worked out that I could be part of this. We we were praying for the same thing, Kim. We were like, can we get a senator anywhere in the country to listen to us? It was fantastic. You know, so Courtney, do you remember back then how it just felt like nobody was standing up on, and, and there was no there was no pushback against all of those crazy mandates and everything? Yeah. I mean, I lived in uh, Santa Monica, California. It was really crazy there. Um, mm -hmm. It's part of, I, I know my audience probably is very familiar with the story, but uh, it's part of how I started the podcast because I'm uh, visually and hearing impaired. So I actually learned how to speak by reading lips. I didn't get hearing aids until I was almost six years old. So when everybody's wearing the mask, um, 
I found that, you know, I didn't realize how much I still depended on nonverbal cues for clarity of speech until all the coping mechanisms I spent my life developing were then stripped from me. Um, and I'm also, I'm a, a speaker and aerial acrobatic performer, and I was, couldn't go anywhere where they would let, where the, uh, you know, the, everybody there couldn't, you know, take off their mask. And I also was not allowed to enter without a mask. So for those who are not familiar with aerial, uh, aerial arts, you know, you're, you may be climbing 26 feet up into the air. I'm blind in one eye. Uh, you now put a mask on me. I already have only 60% of the peripheral vision that somebody who sees binocularly has. So now you put a mask on me and my already reduced peripheral vision is further reduced. And now you expect me to climb 26 feet in the air and invert and try and hear, uh, you know, any like the instructor, choreographers or other people in the room uh, who are now masked up and I'm, you know, inverted 26 feet away from them so yeah it was it was a really really tough time and it was pretty crazy so i gotta um, say well. you're you're the coolest interviewer we've ever met um right off the bat <laughs> thank you uh that is one of the most incredible things i've ever heard in my life right there and yeah we're fighting for you too because we want you to be able to do those aerial acrobatics and be able to see and hear as much as you can we don't want you falling I mean, wow, that's some, that is one of the – guys, can I get – can somebody back me up on this team? That was one of the coolest <laughs> things I've ever heard, right? Thank she, you. She, she's definitely number one. Yeah, I, <laughs> you, you just skyrocketed way up to the top. Wow. Well, um, I want to bring on two of our, our incredible uh, experts and uh, right now. Let's start with Albert because – the, the thing about this for us all, Courtney, is that um, is that this is this is personal for us, you know, mm -hmm. and for a variety of reasons, you know, but because we, we we've all been affected in our families. Some of us really close. Uh, mm -hmm. We all know friends who have been affected deeply. Right. But yeah. there are some people like Albert Benavides of Vera's Aware who has been following the VARES data. You see, all of this was constructed for an end game. And that end game, part of it at least, was the rollout of an experimental biologic that we all knew was gonna be horrific, you know, right. for folks. Albert is one of the, is not one of the, is the top expert in VARES analysis in the entire United States, period. All right. Uh, uh, Albert, can you tell us a little bit about VAERS and what you know that you wish everybody in the country knew? And can you share with us maybe a story of one of the cases you've come across that's really stuck out to you and moved you to say, I'm going to be in this until we win it? Yeah, thank you, Dr. Ely. Sure. And uh, so I've created a, um, a VAERS interactive dashboard like the ones I used to create for my CEOs at the fourth largest lab in the country, bioreference uh, laboratories. And, um, and with that, I've been, I've been following bears and um, I've come to the conclusions. I, I attack it. I attack bears more like a, like a, like a claims auditor, which, which I was in my journey um, in my life's journey there. So um, I'm measuring, um, distances between between uh, events like such as the receive date when they received it when the vax date was when the onset happened when the death happened when the when the report was published 
And uh, with that, my my uh, elevator pitch here is that three simple things. VAERS does not publish all legitimate reports received. So they're receive they're actually receiving a ton of reports that you know uh, make it to them. And there's there's an under reporting factor that that says that may you know maybe as much as only one percent of all the adverse events actually get reported to VAERS. Um, and I'm, I'm talking about the ones that actually made it, uh, the salmon that actually made it to the end of the, you know, the end of the river and got there. They are not publishing all the ones that all the legitimate ones that they receive. Uh, number two is that they are after publication, they are actually deleting, in my professional opinion, they're actually deleting legitimate reports that they should not be deleting. There's a a couple of um, areas when they are legitimately able to uh, delete reports. Um, a, if they if it's fake or false, they can delete the report, which is a federal crime to, to submit a false report. So that's instantly a felony. And two, if it's simply a duplicate that there's you know two two of the reports, but it's the same patient, the same case. And uh, okay, so so those are the two reasons why they can. And, you know, when I do an audit, expecting to find the live, the live twin report, giving them the benefit of the doubt that, oh, they deleted this because it was a duplicate, I cannot find the, the twin. And then, uh, so therefore I say, well, you know, this, you know is, it a, is this a fake or false report? And, and they don't look fake or false because they actually, many of them actually say that this was submitted by a, uh, a contactable physician or a, a contactable healthcare professional. And then the way it's written up all professional, you know, nobody off the street's gonna be able to write up, write the summary narrative like that. So, you know, with that being said, they're deleting uh, fake and false reports. And then Courtney, the third one <clears throat> that is, uh, is the most, one of the most dastardly things is that the reports they do publish, they, I call it throttling, which is which is a purposeful delay in publishing the reports. So with that, what that means to me is that, as an example, just the last recent update last week, there was 22 deaths that were reported, but the person actually died of the COVID jab in 2021. And then an additional 40 deaths on top of that, those 22, an additional 40 that they died in 2022, over a year ago. So that, that's 60 deaths right there, just in one update out of the 200, which comes out to be like 30% of all the deaths. And that's, that's par for the course. That's a little low. Every update usually, uh, uh, for closer to 40% of all the deaths that they give us, they're throttled and they actually died, you know, in 2021, well over a year. So, now, now, Courtney, watch this. Courtney, watch okay. this one. Okay, you ready for mm -hmm. this? Yeah. Albert, is the CDC required to update the public? Let's say it's the first initial VARES report, the person passed out, but then two weeks later they died and there's an update to that VARES report for that person. Is the CDC required to update that information and update the death count? 
Well, uh, Dr. Ely, not anymore. They update, they changed the rules for themselves back in, back in January of 2011, where previous to January 2011, they would append the initial report with follow-up data that they continue to receive. Like even, even today, if you file a report, you get, um, you get pinged at 90, 180, and 360 days you know, asking like a survey for you to report back. Are you, are you okay? Did you get better? Did you get worse? Are you still alive? So they continue to capture follow-up data today, but they do not, they do not update the, the report. So therefore it begs the question, how many people are now since dead in the, in the 1.7 million COVID jab reports that are in there? They're currently telling us 18,000 Americans on the continental United States are dead. And now you have to ask yourself, well, <laughs> I keep saying you can easily double that number um, with people that are that are now since dead. So so no, they only initial reports are made public. And that's the biggest loophole, the biggest paradigm shift. And they did that um, in January 2011, which was shortly after that Harvard Pilgrim study came out uh, in late 2010, where that one really exposed them. And the and Harvard Pilgrim said, "Hey, we, you know, only our calculations show that only one percent of all adverse events actually even get filed to bears." Right. And now, I, Albert, another. Oh, sorry, Courtney. I don't mean to take over on your show, but I had one no, more no. follow-up for him. This is some crazy stuff, right? This is why he's the expert on this. Albert. Yes. Talk right into your microphone though. Your your sound is going yeah. up and down. Okay. Okay, Albert, Albert. When yeah. you get to when you when you get to this, your a person has filed a VARES report. How much time does the CDC supposed to have at max before they publish, before they verify and publish that report? Excellent question. Thank you. They have they allow themselves four to six weeks to rigorously vet and authenticate a claim before they, you know, to adjudicate it, say that it's, ah, it's not fake, it's not false, and it's not a duplicate, therefore we're going to finalize it and publish it. They get, they get four to six weeks, so at the outset, 40, 42 days, and here they are, they're published, they're giving us um, reports, publishing reports, and per their own timestamp, they're holding on, the CDC, FDA, they're holding on to the to the report in their possession over 900 days in some cases. I think their world record is like 960 days before they actually publish it and tell us that this person died back in early 2021. It's ridiculous. Mm. For, for a early warning pharmacovigilance, this is like the, the absolute worst. It's like you're supposed to be spot Johnny on the spot here and telling us for the early warning. And, and so, yeah, mm. they... That's the throttling. Wow. Um, the question I was going to ask was just, it's my understanding that with the Vaccine Compensation Act in 1986, that one of the, it, that of course, you know, a lot of people talk about how it granted them impunity. Um, yeah. However, I thought that the caveat was that VAERS reporting had to be uh, maintain accuracy. And people yeah. on both sides of the argument are arguing whether in, regardless of which direction, but they both argue that it's inaccurate. And that was, it's my understanding that that was the caveat in order to grant them impunity. So 
what how do yeah. they I, let me, I i got the question for you right here albert you ready sure you ready for this courtney okay you are the number one expert on vares analysis in the country has vares ever been over reported <laughs> never never uh they you know i've they're I think that VAERS is a great system. Um, it's a good system. It could be a great system. It's just a form filler, but there's a bunch of arbitrary rules, but it, the people that are entrusted to maintain and care for the system are the same people that are actually manipulating and obfuscating the data. So therefore, um, I think that the CDC and the FDA are just uh, big pharma's lap dogs run and they use bears to run cover for big pharma um and and when i look at the historical data all the way back to the beginning since 1990 they i mean it's nothing new they they del in in 2009 they deleted 65 oral polio deaths reports in one drop and yeah, that's yeah. when that's when deaths meant used to mean something and they deleted 65 and i i really think they probably should have pulled uh you know pulled the oral polio vax back then just based on, on on that stuff but then it, that, that wouldn't have uh, that that wouldn't have uh, gone along with their plans for using it <laughs> so yeah, yeah but to answer yeah. your 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 original question courtney is yes that uh that 1986 act that was one of the one of the obligations that they had as a part of that deal for the for the liability protection was yeah. that and it's not the pharma that is maintaining the the bears. That was an obligation for for we the people, the government, um, mm -hmm. to maintain the system. So so that's why I think that um, it, it's important, you know. And, and God bless Brooke Jackson, but you saw how Brooke Jackson had Pfizer up against the ropes, and, and Pfizer says, "Oh, sorry, Judge, the uh, you know the government made us do it. That's why we cut corners. That's why we did all this." And the judge said, "Yep, by for the letter of the law, uh, you know, you're right. You're right, Pfizer." So and they didn't do nothing. So here we're like going back with the with the government and saying, "Do you you know, guys, you you did the exact opposite of what you were supposed to do. You're actually manipulating the data." Well, the gentle lady wrote. What was that? Would would the gentle lady host yield? Ah, to a comment. Pardon, a comment on. Uh... Yes, ma yes, ma'am. On these organizations and the issue of their immunity from prosecution. I, I'm sorry. Yeah. I, I'm not following the question. You're asking me. Let me. He want, Judge Nally wants to say something, Courtney. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Please. Yeah. Please. Sorry. One of the things I did not mention a moment ago about the power, the scope of the power of a grand jury, they are judges of the law. Any statutory immunity granted by any legislative body can be nullified by a grand jury, with the exception of the fundamental rights immunities contained in our constitutions that's why grand juries are so feared with that idea wow yeah that, that is that's exactly why they're so feared yeah 
So thank you for letting me letting me uh, vent a little bit on on the CDC and FDA, but we I, we got them. We got them up against the corner. We just need to get in front of a of a grand jury. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So so Courtney, like this is what we this is where Albert and Keith now come become so important because they can explain to a grand jury upon subpoena. They can explain to them the ramifications of this initial criminal data fraud and willful misconduct. And I think one of the things that's so important with this grand jury petition is that we are alleging willful misconduct and we want the grand jury to investigate willful misconduct because guess what breaches the protections of 42 USC 300 AA, which is the 1986 National Vaccine Childhood Vaccine Injury Act. Mm-hmm. The only thing that breaches it so that people can sue these companies into oblivion mm-hmm. is willful misconduct. Right. And that's right. exactly what grand juries are charged with investigating. Right. So that and that was going to be my next question is then. So I, I understand that this is to open up the investigation. It is not to prosecute. However, um, who is it who would be the target? Like who are like who would the willful misconduct be? Uh, like who would be the guilty party in that case? We we've named five people in the petition for an initial starting point for investigation by the grand jury. That's mm-hmm. Robert Redfield and Rochelle Walensky, both former heads of the CDC. Mm-hmm. Alex Azar, Xavier Becerra, Health and Human Service secretaries, which were responsible for initiating the incentivization of Medicare Medicaid insurance fraud in our allegations. And Brian Moyer from the National Vital Statistics Systems, who issued the guidance on death certificate uh, changes, but exclusively for COVID without going through um, public comment or federal oversight before doing so. And that's all, and it's all laid out there. Anybody can download it. Anybody can read it. We want Americans to get involved and join the fight. I got one more person and I know there's only a couple minutes here, but I got one more person and you gotta, you gotta listen to him because he's Keith Wilkins has been, has really gone through it. And so Keith, Keith is our Rico criminal enterprise fraud expert. I mean, he's the one that tracks down the money, where they're stealing and and how it's accumulating. But Keith, can you let everybody know kind of what got you into doing this as well? Because there are these human elements that we can't get lost in the law and we can't get lost in the numbers and things like that. There's a human side to all of this that we have to really make sure stays at the forefront of what we do. Sure. I think it starts with my my entry uh, into my professional career, um, my first five years I spent doing uh, fraud work in the private sector at a, at a fairly high level. Um, I made a transition to public education. <clears throat> and so when the pandemic broke out, um, I was residing in the state of Oregon. I was a public school administrator um, and I was I was unsettled with it. There was there was something wrong about COVID, how it was unpacked on us. Um, it did not settle well with me. And I basically decided um, to put my old hat back on and go back to doing fraud work. And the reason for that, first of all, I knew it was fraudulent immediately. 
Um, I had been following it from the, the political angle and I just knew, I don't know how I knew, but I knew. But the issue was there was no data to rely on. That data didn't start to come in until like the, I think mid-February into March of 2020. And the first report of a viral outbreak in China was on the 27th of December of 2019. And so by the time that I had joined Dr. Ely's team, I had already on my own accord written a 331 page, 252 exhibit forensic analysis on COVID just for my, for my own sake. I, I had to have a tool, um, something that I could use. I, as, as, a, as a school administrator in the state of Oregon, educators and um, healthcare professionals were subject to mandates from our governor. The analysis that I had conducted informed me that those mandates were poisonous. They were far outside constitutional boundaries. And it was clear to me that federalism was being used as an enforcement mechanism where governors had power essentially recommended to them where they could step outside of, of constitutional boundaries and start to do things to people that customarily aren't permitted. And I knew this. I, I had the report in my hand. I went to my school district's um, law firm on retainer in writing over and over, please listen to me, this is fraud. This violates mandatory state reporter laws that we as, as educators all have to abide by. We shouldn't be doing any of these mitigations. You talk about your own personal experience with an inhibition, or not an inhibition, but an inability to be able to, um, to recognize um, speech movement and facial recognition. Well, think about what that does to the, the psychological development of a child. Sure. What does yeah. it look like when you require somebody to put a mask on and then go down to a track and, and run a mile for time mm -hmm. and you deprive them of oxygen in a, in a, in a classroom and like, we shouldn't be doing any of this stuff. And yeah. so children I, died literally they, they, it, in my years. district. We had one of the best, I think she was a 400 runner, one of the best runners in the state ran her race and then collapsed at the finish line. It was a national news story. Yeah. And so I went to our school board repeatedly. What they decided to do was nothing. And then the school district ran me through the disciplinary process because I wouldn't, I wouldn't, have, I wouldn't wear a mask, I wouldn't receive the injection, and I wouldn't attend any of their disciplinary hearings. I went to my local sheriff. They wouldn't do any. There was nowhere to go. This is why we have to go down the lane of yeah. a, um, a federal grand jury petition. And what it resulted in for me was because of my refusal, I was placed on unpaid leave and they bankrupted me. Wow. In the state of Oregon, they disqualify you for employment for refusing to abide by the mask and vaccine mandate, mandates. And then they use those two exact same reasons to disqualify you from receiving unemployment benefits. So you can't go to work and you can't get unemployment benefits. I lost my house, my truck, my cash life savings, uh, my full retirement. I had to put everything into, <laughs> into storage. And then I moved into a van. I lived in a van for a year because I had to go find a, a new hometown. And so that's what I did. I spent, a, I spent basically a year looking for a, a new place to live. Wow. Because there were there were no there are no there are no remedies, no remedies at all. Wow, unbelievable. 
And, the, and there's no question that it's enterprise fraud. I mean, like you start looking at what they did, you start to dig into how they manipulated the ICD-10 coding manual mm -hmm. and how they went through and they used uh, federal funding to incentivize a two-tier diagnosis and we'll pay you $13,000 for a COVID diagnosis, but only three for the flu. And if yeah. you put them on a ventilator, we'll give you $39,000. Yeah. But just like, just like teachers, licenses were at stake. Those doctors, their their butts were over a barrel, just like we teachers were. If we didn't abide by what our administrators did, what happens to teachers? What is what happened to me? Doctors face the same thing. A lot of Americans don't have enough gumption to to do what's necessary in order to stand up to tyranny like this. But they say, yeah. you look at the the manipulation of the ICD-10 coding manual. You look at the NBSS diagnostic memos that Dr. Ely talked about, where they literally steered diagnoses to uh, um, COVID over things like flu and pneumonia. Um, I found uh, a, a rolling open five to eight week window in the death certificate process that Dr. Ely talks about and all the work that, that John Bodwin does. Mm -hmm. um, there's just, I, I say this all the time, Dr. Ely loves this. I make sure I say it on every interview. Now, there's a 0% chance that we are wrong. What our federal government has done is they have violated statute written in 1970, the RICO statute. It's Racketeer Influenced and Corrupt Organization Act. And it was written to take down the mafia. It's codified in chapter 96 of title 18 of USC 1961 to 1968. And like I said, there's a 0% chance that we're wrong about COVID-19 being a construct of enterprise fraud. And we could fill up a courtroom with days and weeks of testimony and thousands and thousands of pages of evidence to prove it undeniably and irrefutably. Wow. And then what would be the ramifications if, if they were to discover this fraud and, and determine that it was in fact fraud? Well, what, if I were subpoenaed, I would simply sit down and say, based on my professional opinion as somebody yeah. who spent five years investigating fraud, although RICO is outside of my, my actual scope of practice, this is fraud and this is why and this is how. And you leave it at that. It's the grand jury's decision as to what they do with that information, whether it be to issue a, a presentment or an indictment as Judge Nally right. and Dr. Ely and Mr. Jonk has told us. Right. No, I, my question was what, what would happen if there were an indictment and they did, the grand jury decided that this was, uh, this was fraud. Off to trial we go, I suppose. I'd let doc, uh, Mr. Mr. Jonk comment yeah. on that well, more so than I. There is, um, since we don't have the, the right to prosecute. Right. Um, if no prosecutor picks that up, then it becomes a uh, more public information, more for the politicians to deal with, mm -hmm. uh, public pressure to actually uh, get some prosecution. You ha may have um, uh, prosecutors in, in state prosecutors um, pick up the prosecution with, with uh, something like a, a presentment that the grand jury would come out with. Um, so, uh, there's not a direct path necessarily. Uh, maybe a prosecutor will, a federal prosecutor will change his mind uh, under, say, a different administration, uh, mm -hmm. because uh, we believe that 
the Biden administration is the one that's that's forcing the Department of Justice to heal and to not prosecute the government itself. But under a different administration, that could easily change. Mm. And prosecution, you know, you know, depends what the crime is, what the what the you know the penalties are. But sure. uh, uh, the, these are uh, grave crimes. For sure. Yeah. Crimes against humanity. I, that, it seems uh, uh, unequivocal. <laughs> yeah. Unfortunately. Wow. So do, I, did Dr. Ely still with us or did he take off? Dr. Ely had to go. Okay. No worries. No worries. Well, I thank you all so much for being here and for spending the time. If any of you have anything else you want to uh, add, please do. And uh, yeah, I don't want to take up too much of your time, but yeah. I would just say this. Thank you, Courtney, for the opportunity to come on. Um, on, on behalf of Dr. Ely, I would just throw, throw out another um, invitation to support our cause, to support yeah. what we're trying to do and to support our work for the American people. Absolutely. Yeah. So what is the best way for people to get involved? Is it to go to the website and then to support there? Dr. Ely likes to direct people to the Beyond the Con website. Mm -hmm. And then from there, there's plenty of other places that people can go. I know okay. Albert Albert has all of his own stuff. All my stuff's at Political Moonshine. John right. Bodwin, who's not here with us tonight, posts all of his stuff. So it's all publicly out there and available for those people who'd like to, to find it and look at it. Well, great. I am so grateful that each of you are taking the stand and, and doing what you're doing. And I really hope people get involved because I think that, you know, I, I call the, uh, the powers that shouldn't be the parasite class and they, they only have the power over us if we allow them us to be the, their host. Um, so I think we need to stop hosting them so they can run their crime syndicates. And, uh, you know, I think this is a really good start. And I, I think it was uh, you, uh, Stephen, who was talking about uh, how even if it didn't go to prosecution, there would be the public pressure, public awareness. Um, and I think one of the things that is so important, uh, especially, you know, about trying to get this uh, investigation about a grand jury is there is the public there is the court of public opinion. And uh, we. We know how important that is. That's why they're constantly trying to spin narratives and, uh, you know, do media manip manipulation and censor things. Because if the court of public opinion weren't that important, they wouldn't have to do any of those things. So, exactly. Um, right. Yeah. Well, thank you all. Yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, we, we'll we'll definitely be in touch. I I'm just really grateful, and I'll tell. We'll put the the site links are in the show notes. So yeah, I definitely encourage everybody to go check it out and support your work so. thank you young lady and god bless thank you miss courtney thank, thank you, you courtney <laughs> thank you thank you all
This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.